coming up in today's Film Disruptors. For us, it's a symbiotic kind of process between creative development and, and technology innovation. And, and I honestly wouldn't know how to work outside of that model. It feels like that's how I, I, I learned to, to be a director in immersive media. You know, it's by com- combining these two things. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year's. This is the first Film Disruptors show of 2019. My name is Alex Stoltz, and this is the podcast where I share insights and strategies from the leaders who are redefining and reimagining film and storytelling. And today's guests are Felix Lajeunesse and Paul Raphael, who together form the Emmy Award-winning immersive entertainment studio Felix and Paul. These gentlemen are genuine pioneers of VR, or XR, as they refer to it, and immersive storytelling. And they not only create or have created a massive variety of work, but also they engineer their own tech, which they use to realize their creative vision. And some of the organizations they have partnered with to do this include the Obama administration, Universal Pictures, Fox Searchlight, and Cirque du Soleil. For anyone who is curious about the future and now of immersive storytelling, this episode is definitely for you. Felix and Paul are both incredibly articulate and deeply knowledgeable about this space, and we deep dive into their artistic practice and business strategy and see how those two aspects relate and we also discuss for example the consumer market for vr in 2019 where they see vr and ar and the whole immersive space heading to which is fascinating and a whole bunch of other really cool stuff including felix and paul's advice for emerging storytellers looking to enter this space which is obviously if that's something you're thinking about is really valuable As regular listeners will know, the last couple of shows have been in two parts, as the idea was to make them shorter and easier to snack on. For this one, I've gone with a longer single episode, and I would love to know if you have a preference. So please do drop me a line uh, or tweet me at alexstoltz1 and let me know. If you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a couple of ways to stay in touch. Firstly, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Just click subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop onto your device, your desktop, however you like to listen to your podcasts. Also, you can sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors. That's www.alexstoltz.com. Just enter your email to receive all the latest Film Disruptors news and episodes straight to your inbox. And this is also where you can access previous episodes, find out more about our featured guests, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leads me to say thank you for listening. And now I'm going to hand you over to Felix and Paul. Felix and Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great to have you here, and uh, thanks for taking the time. And yeah, just just so we can picture, whereabouts are are you located today? Well, we're both uh, here in Montreal in the old port. So yeah, we're uh, sort of um, traveling all the time. Um, we have an office in Santa Monica. We have our main uh, headquarters here in Montreal. 
and we get to travel a ton for production. Uh, so yeah, we're just lucky to be at the same place at the same time. Today. <laughs> That's great, and uh, yeah, it's good to. It's obviously so so great to have you both together. So tell me about how you met and how from from that um from from that meeting how the business of felix and paul emerged so we've been working together for close to 15 years um so most of our careers basically um we met after film school uh we were both competing with one another with our uh, graduation films, um, and uh, and we didn't we didn't like each other because you know he was <laughs> getting to win the awards or I would get the awards and then we would be like feeling not so good about one another. But uh, eventually we had an opportunity to pitch on a local music video uh, which had a ridiculously low budget of about five hundred dollars, um, and and I couldn't believe that I would be competing against that guy again. Um, for such a small uh, small uh, portion of, of, a, of a pie. Uh, and so we um, called each other and, and decided to try to do this one as a collaborative effort. Um, so we uh, co-directed a uh, music video. Um, so even if he was my worst enemy at that time, <laughs> we joined forces and we discovered that we actually really liked working with each other and we were challenging each other. And so uh, people started calling and say, "Hey, can you like whoever did that music video? Uh, can you do the, can you do one for this artist?" And then and then we started collaborating that, like that, and it just became Felix and Paul. And then we did commercials. Um, but then both both of us shared a passion for experiential cinema, and by that I mean films that have a strong uh, experiential, immersive quality, such as. Um, you know, Tree of Life by Terrence Malick, or uh, the, the early cinema of Jia Jiankia in China, or Apikatong Wera Setakul in Thailand, and those kind of films that are very atmospheric, uh, contemplative, and we loved that, and, and we somehow wanted to do that. Um, and so we started exploring how we could create those kind of immersive cinematic uh, experiences uh, and so virtual reality was not on our radar at the time. It was really about trying to create a more immersive form of cinema. Um, and so we started to do a bit of that and realized that certain constraints that had to do with the frame itself uh, felt like a, a limitation for us. And so we started to explore 3D stereoscopy cinema, then holography, and then projection mapping inside of environments. And so gradually our practice uh, sort of took us away from traditional media, music videos, films, uh, and, and sort of moved us uh, closer and closer or deeper and deeper, I should say, into the world of immersive cinematic storytelling uh, and immersive video installations. And then uh, for a couple of years, we did that. Um, and at the beginning, it was just research and development. Uh, we were doing that uh, just out of, you know, pure artistic research and, 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 and uh, uh, curiosity, but then we started to make a living out of creating immersive installations. So for instance, we created uh, the Canadian pavilion for the Shanghai World Expo in 2010, which was a massive immersive installation. Um, and so we started to do more and more of that kind of 
you know, professional, immersive uh, and cinematic work. And uh, but that was not enough for us. We felt that uh, whatever we were doing was just not was kind of scratching the surface of what immersive um, uh, cinematic storytelling could be. And uh, we uh, started to look into virtual reality. And so that was around 2011, 2012. Um, and we were reading those papers about virtual reality. Then came the Oculus DK1. And uh, Paul one day came to the office with um, the early DK1. He was one of the first uh, to buy one. And there was this demo on it of a virtual cinema. Uh, it was not a particularly good or, or, or well-done uh, app. It was just a, a virtual cinema. But just this sense of being present uh, inside of the piece and the, the sense of true immersion uh, felt so powerful uh, and so profound and that, that in a way we felt that everything we had been trying to do for the past couple of years uh, using all of those different tools, you know, from, from holography, 3D cinema, projection mapping, live performance, all of that was really to try to achieve that thing, that specific thing that that demo was doing, which was making us, tricking our brain into believing that we were uh, somewhere else. And, um, and, and we sort of immediately uh, fell in love with the medium and thought, okay, we need to we need to inquire this. We need to dive into this now. Uh, and so uh, we, we started to, to do that. And that was really sort of the inception point. We had no idea where that would lead us. There was zero industry. It was just a very niche kind of um, R&D thing. But um, we felt that that's what we were supposed to be doing with our, with our lives. Um, and so we... Uh, hired our guest Stefan involved. Um, Stefan is a producer and he became the third founder of Felix and Paul Studios. And so we tried to identify where we could get money to do that, how we could create a space for us to experiment with VR, basically. So I'll stop now because I talk too much. And <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. So um, Paul, do you want to, I mean, do you want to lead on from, from there and, and what happened next? Sure. Well, that, that was pretty thorough for the inception, although I had no idea you had so much animosity towards me. So then basically, you know, we, you know, we came mainly from, from a, a film background and, a, you know, we, we like capturing reality. That's what we did in, in our films and in our installations. Uh, but everything that was out there in, in VR were these uh, computer-generated game engine type things, including the theater uh, experiences that Felix was mentioning. Uh, so the first thing we set out to do is, is, is explore whether or not it was possible to get reality into virtual reality. Um, so we did some tests, we did some research on uh, panoramic photography, and but you know there's a, a fundamental uh, conflict between you know 360 photography and Stereoscopy, 360 photography is meant to be shot from a single point so that you have absolutely no artifacts when you combine all your images, where a stereo is all about having two different images, one for each eye. And, and to, to, to kind of merge these two concepts uh, was a, 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 huge, um, a huge puzzle. Um, so, you know, we, we, we set out, we explored different models, uh, and we did some, we, we built some, some, some rigs. We did some, you know, wrote some software, played around in post-production, and eventually 
uh, we shot our very first test of, uh, of a woman basically sitting next to you in a church and then looking right into the camera's lenses and therefore the viewer's eyes. And we pushed that till it worked. We basically uh, got all the visual artifacts sorted out, uh, played back everything, put it in, in what at the time was the Oculus ZK1 and just started showing it around. Um, and we had the most insane reactions. Uh, people would literally tear up or freak out when that woman would, would look, look, uh, look at them. Uh, and so we had a sense that, you know, we, we were really onto something. And so basically we, we figured, well, we have to show this to Oculus because they not, they weren't talking about live action at all. We, you know, we didn't know if, if there were other people working on this or, or if they were working on it, but we're like, Hey, no one's talking about this. We have to get this in front of, of Oculus. Um, and by the time we did, we actually had uh, created our second piece, which was, well, our first real piece, truly, because the first one was a demo, uh, which is Strangers with Patrick Watson. And uh, basically, when we got this in front of Palmer Lucky and the rest of his team, uh, they were blown away. They had never seen anything like it, and they had had a lot of interest from, from the film industry, and people were asking them, is this possible? But up until then, the answer was no. And so when they saw this, uh, basically it instantly created a, uh, a fairly tight um, partnership with Oculus. And with them, we created at the time um, the introduction to virtual reality, which was an experience that was prepackaged onto the Gear VR when it, um, when it launched. It was kind of the first thing that played when you put on the headset. And uh, since then, we've gone on to create many, many experiences with Oculus and, and then later with other partners. But, um, mm. yeah, that, mm. that's sort of... And, that's yeah, uh, and is that how, how it works in terms of your business, is that you are creating, uh, you're creating products for platforms like Oculus, or do you, have, uh, do you originate your own content, or do you work with other... Um, uh, other, other commissioners? It's a bit of everything. I mean, we when we started, there was zero content. So platforms like Oculus were really interested in having uh, premium content that would demonstrate the possibility of the platform, the possibilities of the medium. Um, most of what they had was uh, game content. And so uh, we formed a partnership with them early on to create a series of experiences. Some of them would be uh, tied to existing IP, like the Jurassic World experience. Some of them would be completely original content, um, like the 40-minute fiction piece that we did called Miyubi. Um, and some of them would be nonfiction, original nonfiction. Um, for example, the Nomad series that we did, which was a series of three episodes. So really the, the mandate or the spirit of the original um, partnership we had with them was really to explore um, the medium and push the boundaries um, as, as fast uh, as we could, in a way, uh, and to generate excitement within the industry. Um, and then built on that model of partnership, we did uh, some content with Google. We also did some content with Samsung. All the service delay stuff that we did was with Samsung and was done in a similar type of of mindset of let's dive in and create high production value content that will open the mind of you know, the industry and, and consumers and get people excited about, about the media. Um, 
nowadays things are starting to change. The platforms are not necessarily financing uh, content in the same way than they used to do it four or five years ago. So now we're uh, going for uh, private financing and you know different uh, financing strategies that are closer to what you would find in the cinema industry. So uh, that part is changing, but our core mission as a studio, which is to keep pushing the boundaries of virtual reality as an art form, as a medium, remains the same. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with VR pioneers Felix and Paul. And if you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes. Uh, which of your works are you most proud or excited about in terms of in terms of doing just that? In terms of where, where do you feel you've really you've managed to push the boundaries the furthest? If you if you can say um well i think the first project that comes to mind is miyubi um when we started doing that first of all um people in the industry were asking us well do you really think that fiction can work uh in virtual reality and we said yes we think it will work and then we had a 20-minute script and already was considered as potentially too long for the capacity of the hardware and the software at that time but we ended up creating a 40-minute piece, uh, which could have been seen as um, suicide at that time. People were asking us, um, don't you think that people will be bored 40 minutes with a headset on their head, you know, for purely physical reasons, they will want to take it up or they will be bored because no one has done, uh, you know, 40 minutes, which is almost feature length uh, storytelling in, in fiction and virtual reality. So uh, we had a lot of uh, um, um, forces um, in a way or resistance that were kind of against the project in a way. Um, but at the same time, um, we felt that it was possible. Um, and not only would we want to, we wanted to achieve that, but we also wanted to make the piece interactive because in this experience, you are a robot in 1982. So if you look down, you see your little robot buddy and, um, you, and then you are immersed in the reality of that family. You're gifted to a boy for his birthday and you evolve through a series of scenes within that family. And so, uh, your own, uh, dramatic arc as the robot, as a member of, of this family, evolves and intersects with the dramatic arcs of um, the family members. And so in that drama, uh, we also conceived that we could add some interactive um, uh, elements. Uh, and then we conceived that the creator of that robot, before he shipped the robot out there uh, in stores to be sold, implemented some programs inside the robot's brain. And depending on how you look at, you know, the scenes, and if you look at specific objects inside of the scenes, uh, that might trigger some Easter egg programs that are sort of part of your, your robotic brain. Um, and so that opens uh, other narratives and other segments of stories that would not have been revealed to you otherwise. And so we also implemented that to the 40-minute linear story um, and and then that added to the complexity and to the I guess the heaviness of the endeavor. Uh, so and all of that was successful. All of that worked, but it was a, an enormous amount of work and research and development and trying to develop new 
uh, new code and, and new processes. And, and, you know, it was both like a creative and a technological challenge to push that project forward. Um, so we're, we're very proud about this one um, and, uh, and proud to have also, I guess, believed in the vision of doing something like that uh, in 2015, 2016, when, when everyone was telling us it, it would sell. Amazing. Uh, it, it sounds extraordinary. I'd love to experience it. And, and was that something which was commissioned by a platform? Yeah, so it was an it was an original script. Uh, we created it in partnership with Funny or Die, and it was financed by Oculus. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to come back, I guess, to talk a bit about these. As you say, the market's evolving, and you're getting more more traditional film type financing sort of emerging. And begin to talk about that and talk about the uh, the consumer appetite and and where you see that going. I mean, do you uh, do, do you think? I mean, that that uh, that project, the fact you're putting the viewer inside a robot and the viewer is experiencing being someone, not only someone different from them, but a completely different kind of you know life form. Is, do you think that that's the the key part of the key selling point of VR or, or if not, you know, do you, what, what do you think? Do you think there is a key selling point of VR? Well, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that what we did with Miyubi is the only way to do that. Um, the, basically the first thing we ask ourselves when we create any experience is, is who the viewer is. And, and, and the answer isn't always, uh, you know, a particular character, often the answer is they are themselves, you know, usually in the case of, of our documentaries. Uh, sometimes the answer is a little more abstract than, I, than an actual person. It could be like in the case of the People's House, uh, where, which we did with the Obamas uh, at the White House. You know, a lot of the experience is actually meant to be the memories of the president and the first lady as they talk about their time in the White House. So, you know, the, the, this experience, for example, fluctuates between you being yourself as you are in front of uh, Barack or Michelle as they talk to you, but then when you're actually exploring the White House, you're kind of, it's kind of a trip down memory lane, and, and we use subtle movements and positioning cues to give that impression. So, you know, it's really something that it, it, it's, it depends on the experience. You know, we... we we're, we're still discovering new, I should say, um, types of identification for the viewer as we explore content. And as we move into also doing interactive content, that answer is also evolving quite a bit. So you want to know who your viewer is. You want to know why they're there. And you, want to know, you, you also want to define why they can or can't do different things. So in the case of a cinematic experience, the viewer can't do anything. So you really want to build that into the definition of the viewer. So in the case of Miyubi, it's easy because you're a cheap, you know, toy robot that can't really do much. And so that defines, you know, the scope of what you can and can't do. Uh, in the case of a more interactive piece, you still want to ask yourself, why can't the viewer do everything? Because the minute you can do anything, you, you, you want to do everything. And, and we, we, you know, we don't want to take for granted 
the technological limitations. Be like, well, you can't do everything because it's a virtual reality experience. No, we still want to create a, an environment and a, uh, a setting and a situation that frames what you can and can't do in a way that makes these limitations uh, kind of invisible. So, like in a way, in a way, creating the sort of logic of the story world. Exactly. Uh, of the story world and the, the and, and and putting the viewer in the right frequency, I guess, uh, in in terms of state of mind, because very often the things that we do to in the to immerse the viewer, what we do to create the conditions for presence, are very subtle things that the viewer will not acknowledge consciously or rationally when the viewer watches the experience. But these are things that will be felt. Um, for example, it's, it's a very simple example, but when we did the Nomad series um, and we were you know, immersing the viewer into the reality of a family inside of a nomadic culture at three different places in the world, the one rule we had was we will always place the camera in scenes to make the viewer feel like he, he was a local uh, from that culture and never like a tourist or a visitor. So we always spent time with the family, looked at how they were, uh, let's say, just eating, and then we would think, okay, well, if you were a family member, you would most likely sit here, you know? Uh, and so that's always where we would place the camera by, by observing for a while the natural flow of how that family was you know, was living from eating to, uh, you know, uh, working with the animals or whatever it is, and always, always placing the viewer in that uh, sort of super intimate, um, almost family-like perspective. And that was the rule. So when you watch the piece, you don't necessarily think, oh, great, I'm a family member. Like, you don't, you don't recognize that necessarily consciously or rationally, but you can feel that intimacy. You can feel the fact that you're you somehow belong there. You feel accepted in a way. So it, it, it plays, I guess, more on an emotional level, more on an almost subconscious level, but it, it, it's a big factor into creating emotional engagement, emotional attachment. Um, so we, we prefer to work this way than to approach immersion from a, a heavy-handed kind of directorial perspective where we try to force in the viewer into our scenes with like, like loud narrative choices and things like that. We, we like, we like to think about it as, you know, infusion of tea. Like it's a very subtle process that happens gradually. And, and that kind of gradually immerses you and you, you, you sort of gradually surrender to a scene and surrender to the experience. And, and we try to, to do that and we're patient with that process. But moving away from the creative side of the process, I also wanted to ask about the technology side, as I know that Felix and Paul also, you develop your own tech, your own headsets and, and so on. So um, that's very intriguing from a business point of view. You're actually creating, uh, presumably, um, yeah, uh, uh, intellectual property, but te technology as well. And I'd love to sort of hear how that fits into the whole Felix and Paul mix, why you do that. And then, yeah, does that sort of present any issues or opportunities when you're when you're sort of trying to position your company with financing and uh, and so on? That's a very long question. Sorry. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the technological development came out of necessity early on because 
there simply was no way to do what we wanted to do. Um, when we saw the first uh, VR experiences, like I said, that they were all computer generated and we wanted to get reality in those headsets. So we had to figure out how to build, you know, at first we were just putting, you know, camera rig, building camera rigs. Uh, but we, we quickly found out that the, the optimal way to capture images was to build a camera uh, almost from scratch. And, and we may not have created our own sensors, but we did build almost everything else around those. Um, so that was the first step, building a camera. And then, well, what do you do with those images? You have to put them together. So we have to figure out processes and, and, and write special software to make that a possibility. And once all of that's together, there was no way to play those those files, that there weren't even, you know, VR video players at the time. So we had to write our own software to do that. So, you know, that that's how things started. But that was also in continuation with what we had been doing in the past. You know, we were always about, you know, creating um, art that was really empowered by technology, creating new forms of immersive storytelling. Um, so even before we were doing virtual reality, we were doing projection mapping. Uh, when we were doing stereoscopic installations, we were very much developing new processes and, and, and new technology to do that. So it was very much in continuation of that. And since then, I mean, you, you could argue that once we've created that initial technology and that the industry has then picked up and then a bunch of people created cameras and software, well, the fact is that once we, we created our own tools, uh, you know, which we really we knew very intimately and, and which we had full control over, uh, it was hard to stop. In fact, you know, at almost every, you know, production and, and in between productions, we're tweaking and improving uh, our software, our hardware, and our processes. And, you know, there's a, there's a holistic quality to that that I think is, is probably a big part of uh, what has allowed us to do all the things we've done, you know, like whether it was making the cameras, uh, you know, capture better images, uh, become more automated, um, whether it's, you know, building interactivity into our apps, uh, special optimizations to improve image quality, um, or special rigs for, for special situations such as shooting underwater um, or shooting at different scales. You know, we're really not depending on anyone's cameras or anyone's post processes or anyone's software to do the things that we want to do. And, you know, we can also react much more um, uh, fluidly, let's say we're on a set and we were confronted with some kind of issue. We know exactly, you know, we can pivot pretty quickly because we built these tools and we know what their limitations are and what we could possibly fix in post or not fix in post without having to rely on the third party's opinion. So in terms of what that means as a business, uh, it was a bit of a hard sell at first when we when we first started raising uh, money. I'll admit that the uh, Silicon Valley uh, VCs were were way more interested in the technology than the concept of a fully integrated studio that includes technology. Uh, but we did eventually uh, manage to, to sell our uh, to sell this concept, and I'm glad we did because you know, we, our main interest is really the creation of, of content and this whole technology is there to enable that. So um, really, if we, if we split those two, I think 
the, the, the sum of those parts is really what makes the studio and not, you know, if we were to splinter those things, I don't think we'd be where we are today. But it's also like the only way that we learn to work because, you know, going back to the, the very first question and how we worked together for 15 years, you know, even at the time when we started to do, you know, like crazy things in post-production, we would never have the money to go out and, and hire a third party. So we had to figure out how do we do that? So we learn post-production software and tricks. And then after that, okay, so how do we do 3D cinema when we can't afford, you know, like working with Panavision, James Cameron level type of rigs. And so we had to create those. We had to learn our trade doing technology to be able to keep going in our creative exploration. So that was true for building software and, 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 and building hardware. And it, it just became a model for us when, you know, every time we have a, a new creative idea, we assume that we will have to a certain extent to do some technological development. And then when we do the technological development and we, we, we get uh, deep into that process, then it starts to open up some new creative ideas, new creative possibilities. And so, you know, one thing informs the other. And it's really, for us, a symbiotic kind of process between creative development and, and technology innovation. And, and I honestly wouldn't know how to work outside of that model. It feels like that's how I, I, I learned to, to be a director in immersive media, you know, it's by com combining these two things. Hmm. I've got a picture of the Lumiere brothers first film um, on, on my wall. And it reminds me that those guys were, were technologists as well as artists. And uh, that makes perfect sense. I'd like to ask, uh, uh, to ask you to just sort of, if you could give me an overview where, where the VR is in the market today. How would you describe it in terms of the consumer side of things? You also mentioned, um, I think Paul mentioned about the financing that's starting to become more sort of traditional finance models on on the table for vr products which suggests there's you know more um revenue coming in from from sales i don't you know perhaps or maybe there's a, a different way but i'd just love to yeah to get your overview on that and thoughts about how it can go to the next level sure so you know, when we started this, as we said earlier, that there there was no market. This was basically uh, something we thought had infinite potential, but was also pretty pretty out there. I mean, when when we when we first started talking to people, even showing them demos, you know, people were blown away. But they were like, "What? What are you going to do with that? That's you know, we're talking, we're probably decades away from from people adopting this." And this, of course, was before the Facebook acquisition of Oculus, and then with you know almost before every almost every major technological uh, company jumping into VR. Um, and you know we we were raising money and building our company at a time where we were really going in there for the long run. Uh, we we were not expecting any you know the hype that happened uh, that started happening in 2014, 2015. Um, so we really built a foundation to to grow at a steady pace for however long it might have taken for VR to become mainstream. Uh, what happened in, in 2014 with the acquisition of Oculus is this insane hype. 
So all of a sudden, everyone was making a headset. Um, people were predicting that we were a year or two or three away from from mass adoption, and um, you know that was that was that was great. That was a lot of fun, and it certainly uh, gave the studio a boost in terms of uh, momentum. But deep down, I was always skeptical because VR is a fundamental paradigm shift at almost every level, at the creative level, at the hardware level, at the cultural level, um, you know, storytelling is, needs to be reinvented. Uh, apps need to have completely new paradigms. The hardware is, yes, impressive, uh, but still, you know, heavy, bulky, um, you know, resolution is not where we're used to having uh, our screens at these days. Um, we don't know how or when to go into VR. You know, people sit down after a long day of work and turn on the TV or, or, or listen to a podcast or, you know, while they're in a bus. There, there isn't a space yet for people to, to go into VR. And there's all sorts of questions about, uh, you know, is it isolating? Isn't it? Is it not isolating? Is that okay? Is that not okay? All these things combined uh, create something that, you know, in my view, are we're always going to take a while to settle in, um, and I think I think that's what we're seeing today. You, you you saw the hype, and then I was like, okay, wait a second. How do we truly make content that is native to this medium? Um, when will resolution catch up? When will these you know goggles turn into glasses? Uh, and what is the place of VR going to be in our society? And, um, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but, you know, we are definitely, uh, you know, this is not, when we started making VR, we, we basically committed 100%. We, we stopped doing uh, everything else we were doing. We were no longer doing installations or not doing films. And this is really, um, I think, a, a, a lifelong journey to, to, to explore this medium. Uh, and you could throw in MR and, and to a certain extent AR in there because I think these are all digital immersive mediums um, for us. But it's going to take a while. Yeah, and there's, there's another layer to that, which is, you know, from the very beginning when we started playing with virtual reality and exploring that, one thing that felt very obvious to us, and, and honestly, I think I would even trace back that thinking to, the, to our early days of doing immersive installations, is that when you start to create immersive storytelling, you realize that this is really aligned with the way we as human beings interact with physical reality on a daily basis. You know, like we, from the day we're born, uh, we, use, we, we, we get used to interact with the physical world through our senses, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our body, our sense of presence inside of reality. And this is how we learn to you know, um, be in the world. And when you start to create immersive storytelling installations, you're, you're basically trying to recreate that in a digital experience. You're trying to bring the viewer to utilize his senses and utilize a sense of presence in the context of a media experience. And, and we felt from the beginning that in the long run, the digital experience will become immersive, you know, and, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, entertainment or storytelling. I'm talking about the whole digital world. You know, we've been longtime believers that 
spatial computing is inevitable, you know, and that immersive computing and being immersed inside of data with, with data overlapping physical reality, that that is an inevitable step uh, forward that is the next platform after the mobile um, um, platform. So I think that everything will eventually converge into what you could call the immersive spatial computing. I think that social media is going to go there. The computing experience is going to go there. Uh, human communication is going to go there. Then immersive entertainment is going to go there. And it's in that sense, you could argue, argue that what you see today uh, is immersive cinematic storytelling and immersive game, gaming being sort of the precursor or the, the, the sort of front runners of that transformation towards um, uh, spatial computing and the sort of global immersive media world. I think that entertainment goes there first, but eventually everything will go there. Um, and that seems to us like um, not as science fiction, you know, it seems to us like very, very concrete and inevitable technological evolution. Um, and, and, and what we do is only just one part of the pie. And, you know, really, if you ask yourself, are we still going to be staring at small rectangles, whether they're the ones in your pockets or on your walls, in five years or ten years? I mean, it's kind of inconceivable that now that there is this, you know, volumetric representation of the digital world, that it's not going to take over at some point. So the question is not if, but when. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Felix and Paul. And to receive new episodes straight away, subscribe on iTunes or sign up at alexstoltz.com. Yeah, in, in a more practical sense, you know, in terms of audiences and consumers, is there is there a market right now for a VR in in the sense that you know it, people are willing there's a there's a market of people there willing to pay for experiences or is it still a or are we still in a case where it's we're work it's third party um, partnerships and that kind of model for getting this great work out there? Well, there is a market. It's very early, though. Like, so, for example, we started monetizing our content not so long ago, you know, and so some experiences that we created were meant to be uh, sold on the platforms, and that started very recently. Um, and so we're starting to sort of gather the, the metrics and the analytics on the success of that. Um, and uh, you can look at the location-based entertainment world, which is kind of blooming. Uh, so not a lot of people saw that coming a couple of years ago, but one of the um, uh, direction that the VR market took is in the context of location-based entertainment. And there are some interesting success stories now, like people actually pay a significant amount of money to go in an immersive um, uh, experience and they go there with their friends and they have like a 15, 20 minute experience. And that's something that is, you know, transportive and powerful and they get excited. They tell other people, you have to go 
you know, take a cab and go to that location and try it yourself. And so there's this momentum building in the location-based entertainment world. Uh, and there is a momentum building in the home distribution market, too. I think that it's, it's a little early to, to say that the market is huge uh, and, or to make very specific forecasts about where the market will be in two years. But I think that if you look at that, on a, if you kind of zoom out and look at it from a, a more holistic perspective of where it was five years ago, which was absolutely nowhere, and where it is five years later, which is like a, a fast-growing industry, both in the at-home and in the LB uh, market, and where it will be in, in, five, in five years, I think it's, it's arguably realistic to look at that as an exponential curve, um, and, um, and that's what we're, that's what we're uh, hoping to see. And, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the way we conceive of projects is evolving as well. So, you know, back, back in the early days, a project was just about coming up with a good idea and making it happen. You know, we come up with a concept, a script, whatever it is, we produce it, we put it online, and maybe we push to show it in a couple festivals, and that's the end of that story. Um, nowadays, we're thinking in a much more, more holistic way uh, of, of the content, but also where it's going to be shown and how and what the distribution model is going to be, and especially if it's an LBE play. And um, I think that's, that's important to do today. You can even think of, of multi-platforming a project uh, in a way that it can be uh, an MR and or VR and or AR uh, and or LBE and, and how do all these things uh, work together. So, uh, and not in a, you know, not in a, a way that, you know, cheapens the product. You know, I think there's, you could take a VR piece and, and stick it on, on a, on a phone as a 360 video, but that's not a very compelling experience, but what are ways to make that a compelling adaptation? Um, and, and these are things we're thinking a lot about with our, our new slate of projects. Well, great. I mean, we're coming to the end of our time. I'd love to get your take on is for your advice uh, for emerging storytellers, someone who wants to create stories and connect with audiences today. They're coming, uh, they're coming at it afresh. What would be your advice to someone in that situation? Well, one thing that comes to mind is that over the past five years, I've, um, I've met a lot of people and, and, and saw a lot of scripts that people sent their way sometimes that, um, that seem to be cinema scripts in a sense that, um, I mean, a lot of people in this industry, uh, either thinking about making stuff or actually making stuff, uh, look at this as immersive cinema. So they would tell a story in that medium in a very similar way than they would in, 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 in film. Um, and that's interesting, but that's what I call immersive cinema. It's, it's a cinematic experience, and you as a viewer are not fully integrated to it because conceptually you're just a VR camera that is filming a scene, just like a filmmaker would film a scene with a 35-millimeter camera, you know? Um, and that can be interesting, and that can lead to interesting results. But for me, that's not, that's not the way I conceive of virtual reality. Um, for me, virtual reality is really about fusing the viewer with the story world and in a way that is not just visual, but also conceptual and, and emotional. And, and, and that for that marriage or that fusion or that merger to kind of happen, uh, I think it's very important to ask yourself the question about what 
does the viewer represent in my story? Why is that an immersive VR experience? You know, what is the context for the um, immersion of the viewer in the story? Or what is the identification process? Like, um, I think that that is a fundamental question. And whether we do uh, fiction or nonfiction, we always ask ourselves this question. And we honestly don't go forward with a production unless we have a clear answer to that question. Because once you have a clear answer to that question, it's something that you want to protect. It's something that, that is very precious. It's almost like the sun in the solar system. It's the thing around which you know everything else gravitates and, and orbits. And, uh, and for us, that is, that is like the, the main sort of to be or not to be kind of fundamental Shakespearean question for all the work we do. Um, so I don't know if, if that's the only way to do VR. Uh, the, the art form is too young. Um, but but if spontaneously, if anyone comes my way and asks me something about virtual reality or guidance, that's always what I go back to because that's been our kind of guiding light in that in that process. And I, I would add to that, um, you know, don't underestimate just how different it is from anything that's ever come before it. Um, it it's you know, it really requires a deep dive full immersion, no pun intended, in, in the medium, I think. If, if you're out there and you're thinking about exploring VR, uh, it, I know it's, it's, a, it's a risky thing, like anything, to dedicate yourself to, to, to anything, but if you can make it a full-time, you know, uh, dedicated exploration, I think that's probably the best thing you can do to, to really, you know, understand the medium and to really... Uh, you know, push things further than there's just too much to figure out to, to be a VR tourist, I think, these days. And, and if it's something you're doing on the side, sure, but, you know, um, you, you've got a, a job in a different field, <clears throat> in a different field um, and you can't, you know, just fully dedicate yourself to that, that's, that's fine. But if, and all you can dedicate yourself to it, I think that's the best way to, to explore this medium. So that was my conversation with VR pioneers, Felix and Paul. If you want to find out more about Felix and Paul, listen to other episodes or get in touch, please visit the home of film disruptors, www.alexstoltz.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes. And if you could leave a review, that would be very appreciated. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again soon. As anyone listening to this show for a while will know, the business of storytelling is something I'm personally very passionate about. And when I'm not interviewing film disruptors, I love applying this passion and using my expertise to help independent storytellers and filmmakers accomplish their goals and get stories made and seen. I do this by working with storytellers intensively or over a longer period to develop the project and strategy for maximum finance, distribution, and commercial impact. If you are a filmmaker or storyteller and would like to find out more about how I can help your project, I'd love to hear from you. 
please go to alexstoltz.com or just drop me an email at alex at alexstoltz.com. Mm-hmm.